Amen. Please be seated. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 6. We want to continue our look now into the beginning of this new section, which began in chapter 5, verse 11. It runs all the way through chapter 6, verse 12. The section we are in now contains our third warning passage. What is that warning What is that third warning? It is this. If you're not growing in Christ, there is a very big problem with very dire circumstances, okay, or very dire consequences. If you're not growing Christ, there's a very big spiritual problem with very dire consequences. Now, remember here, and again, we've looked at this over the last several weeks, one of the reasons that they have not been growing since their profession of Christ, verse 11, chapter 5, tells us that they are have become dull of hearing. That word, nathros, means lazy or sluggish. Lazy or sluggish. What does that mean? Well, notice again that they were not always that way. They have become lazy and sluggish, and lazy and sluggish in their hearing. How do they become lazy in their hearing? They stopped applying the truth of Scripture to their lives. They had some knowledge up here, then they just stopped. I said, okay, that's it. That's where I'm at. I feel comfortable here. I'm not going to grow anymore. I'm not going to dig a little bit deeper. I'm not going to continue uh, to, uh, to dig deeper into the scriptures. I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm right here at this level, and I'm okay with that. And uh, I might sprinkle in a few things a little bit later on in my life, but right now, this is where I'm at, and I've stopped. So these professing Christians had heard the truth of the gospel again and again and again, but they stopped applying the truth of the gospel to their lives. What would have been the next natural step after hearing the gospel message should have been uh, salvation. But that came to a screeching halt because they stopped applying the truth of those truths to themselves. In fact, by now, the author of Hebrews says, verse 12, that not only should they be growing, and saved, and now even moving further in their walk with Christ. But by now, he says, you actually should be teachers. That's how, that's how much you should have grown by now. And he refers to, notice here in verse 12 of chapter 5, he says here, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and solid food. Remember, we dug deep into those elementary principles. Those are the ABCs of the faith. Those are the the beginning things you would learn in the faith. And he says, and, and I want you to know that those elementary principles that he's referring to are not the basics of the Christian faith, or when we get to chapter 6, verse 1, he would not be telling you to abandon those. He would be telling you to grow upon those, but he wouldn't be telling you to leave those behind or abandon them. What he is referring to is the elementary teachings of the Old Testament, which as Jews, they should have already understood these basics. He's telling them they need to move beyond the basic understanding of the Old Testament truth to a more mature understanding of the truth in Christ. But they're stuck. They're not growing. They're not becoming teachers. He's telling them, you need to move beyond it. They've heard these wonderful truths. 
They accepted them for a while as truth, and then they ceased applying that truth to their lives. And thus, instead of growing in grace and knowledge, they have actually went backwards. And we've talked about this again when we were in chapter 5. As you know, you cannot spiritually tread water, right? You're either growing in grace and knowledge, or you're falling away. There's no such thing as as, uh, treading water spiritually. We think we're treading water, but the moment that you start realize or start depending more and more on yourself and less and less upon God, when you start moving away from your union with Christ and focusing more on yourself, you are not treading water no matter what you think. You are actually beginning to fall away. You start drifting away again and again. And we've all seen that, haven't we? We've seen many times where someone, it seemed like they were uh, on fire for Christ and they were moving ahead and then something happens in their life. And then what happens? They start moving away, start moving away. And finally they drift away and fall away. Unfortunately, I think we all have those people that we know where that has happened. So thus, instead of growing in grace, they actually went backwards. How far have they fallen? They've fallen so far back, they're actually considering going back all the way to Judaism. They're actually thinking, I, I need to go all the way back to where I started, of which, from which I was saved from. That's how far they've fallen away. Look at verse 13 of chapter 5. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the words of righteousness, for he is an infant. He's a baby. He's a spiritual baby. So the author of Hebrews states what they really need is not more rehashing of all those Old Testament truths, but a deeper understanding of the new covenant in Christ. And so they need to they need solid food. And in this context, the solid food is a deeper understanding of the truths of Jesus as the promised Messiah and how those truths apply in the new covenant. These professing believers are trusting in their elementary understanding of the old covenant as the basis of their faith instead of fully trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. As a matter of fact, he tells them, you are little babies. You are spiritual infants. That word there, nepios, means immature, simple-minded, or foolish. None of which we would like to be have attached to our name, would we? We don't want, neither one of us want to be, none of us here want to say that we're simple-minded or immature or foolish. Now, in contrast to those professing Christians that he's talking about and that are relying on the Old Testament to save them, the author of Hebrews immediately uh, introduces those who are mature. Look at verse 14. He says, listen, in contrast to the spiritual babies, the, the spiritually mature, solid food is for the mature who because of what? Practice, in other words, applying that to their lives, have their senses, what? Trained to discern good and evil. Those who were truly saved have already embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and understand the truths and the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant, and they are digesting solid food. The author of Hebrews wants these professing believers to move beyond the mere basic knowledge of God in the Old Covenant to the mature knowledge of God through his Son in the New Covenant. And then he wants them to apply these things to their lives and put them into practice. That brings us back to chapter 6, verse 1. And chapter 6, verse 1, and verses 1 through 3 are the how-to section. 
He just told everybody, he just got done admonishing everybody, you're little babies, you're not growing, you're not maturing, you're not even coming to the full, uh, you're not even coming to salvation, you're stuck there in this Old Testament, Old Covenant, you're clinging to those things, and because of that, we can't, you can't move forward. So he says, therefore, look at verse 1, therefore, as it, as it just pertains to verses 11 on, based on this precarious condition that they're in as spiritual babies, the author lays out exactly what they need to do to become mature adults or to become perfect. That word meaning complete. This is what they need to do. They need to become complete in Christ. They need to become mature in Christ. They need to let go of the things that are uh, that a baby would cling to and move like milk and move now to solid food like a mature person will do. There are two words in this verse. I told you before, you need to underline. They help us to really understand what's going on here. The first word is that word leave, leaving the elementary teaching. And the second word is translated press on in your Bibles. That first word, aphentes, means to leave, to completely put off. I like the definition, to abandon. It means you need to move away from that. You need to quit clinging to those old things that you've been clinging to that you think bring you salvation, that you think grow you in grace and knowledge, that you think make you a Christian. You need to let go of those Old Testament and and now press on to the things in Christ. So in essence, here's what the Greek translation would say, leaving behind the teaching of the Messiah, press on to maturity, press on to perfection press on to completion. Or you might prefer move beyond the beginning teaching about the Messiah in the old covenant and press on to completion to a fully mature Christian. Remember the context is that he has been teaching them why Christ is better. What's the theme of Hebrews? Christ is better. Right? He's already walked them through. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. Right? He's already walked them through. And then he stops right in the middle and says, I want to talk to you about Melchizedek, but you don't even you can't even comprehend what all that means and how it pertains to the new covenant because you are clinging to these old testament things and you cannot move forward. And so remember that's what this warning is about in context. So the first step to coming into maturity uh, in and through Christ is the act of leaving or abandoning those old teachings about the Messiah. What specifically are those elementary teachings about Christ that they should abandon? He lists six of them, six of them, and that are found about the Messiah in the Old Testament law. Let's look at them, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity not laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So each of these six, remember, are little couplets. They go together, right? So the first is the elementary teaching of repentance from dead works and faith in God. That's the first little couplet. The next two are instructions about washings and the laying on of hands. That third little couplet is about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So you got those three little things, three sets of two, 
and that he's referring to. Incidentally, each of those six things form the foundation of what you would teach somebody who is a new proselyte to Judaism. Each of those six things. So what does that mean? That means that if somebody were to, uh, how the Jews would have done, if somebody was going to come to faith and, and, uh, and embrace Judaism, not come to faith, but embrace Judaism, they would teach them these six things. Okay, Each of these six things. These are the basics, if you will. And you would have been taught them, you would have taught them before being baptized and accepted into the Jewish synagogue 2,000 years ago. So that's what we have here. Each item here is from a Jewish context, but they take on a deeper, more significant meaning in Christ. So the point here is that these do not represent anything but the barest beginnings of the Christian faith. These are the elementary principles of Judaism, and thus the elementary principles of the Christian faith. And it's necessary to go from the knowledge of these initial truths to a complete, fuller, mature understanding in Christ. So let's look at the first one. The first one is here, repentance from dead works, which primarily meant to this audience, to the people he's speaking to, turning away from the dead works of the law and one's doomed attempt at self-salvation. Second part of that, coupled with that, is repentance. Repentance is an act of faith. So remember, you have repentance and faith, two sides of the same coin. We turn away from sin, right? Repentance, that's annoying. To turn away completely, 180 degrees, and we turn to faith. We turn away from sin. We turn to faith in God. So we have repentance and faith, two sides of the same coin. So just turning from the dead works, but not turning in faith to God, right, is only half of that. You must have in faith, you must join that with faith, a personal relationship and a trust in God. So the first two elementary teachings from the Old Testament are about salvation. Let's look at the next two, remind ourselves again of what those two are. Instruction about washings and laying on of hands. So that's the next two we have. Some of you may have the word baptism in your translation. The word here is baptismos, and it's plural, which means that nowhere else in the New Testament is that word used for baptism. It's always used in the singular. Why? Because there's only one baptism in Christ. There's not multiple. So everywhere else where it's used in the New Testament, that word means washings, washing or ritual cleansings. And in Judaism, there would have been lots of washings, lots of ritual cleansings. And remember, the Jews were very focused on the external washings in appearance, right? And under the New Covenant, Christ is concerned not about the external things, but the internal things, right? The internal cleansing. So that's what, that's what we talked about before. The author of Hebrews is saying here, it does us no good to keep rehashing ceremonial washings and rituals if you don't embrace a deeper understanding that these were all pointing to an inner cleansing through Christ. The second part of that couplet is the same, the laying on of hands. In the Old Covenant, before they made a sacrifice, they would lay their hands on the sacrifice. That was a way of identifying their sin to that animal, and then they would sacrifice that animal, the shed blood, the remission of that sin. All of that, of course, was pointing to what? 
to the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, right? And so we know that now on this side. The author of Hebrews is saying, let go of those old covenant rituals and washings. They were just a picture of what you have now through Christ. Quit clinging to that to think that you're saved through that. Quit clinging to that to think that you now have a right standing before God because you're clinging to these old things which were all pointing to Christ. He says you need to let go of that. Just let it go. Let it go. So rehashing this old ritual will not bring you to maturity. Which brings us to the last couplet, resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. And again, in the Old Testament, we looked at this before, Job 19, I think, around verse 25, right? Where Job talks about seeing God in the flesh, right? It'll be in the flesh. Job 19, verse 25, I think, verse 27, speaks of resurrection of the flesh. And we looked at Daniel 12 that talks about a coming judgment for Israel. Again, these are all basic doctrines that any new convert to Judaism would have, uh, would have undergone. He's saying you must quit clinging to these old aspects of Judaism and think that's all there is to Christianity. You cannot move forward until you understand what these mean in Christ. And so he's admonishing them not to move beyond that, that these were just a shadow. But they're reluctant to give that up because they've been raised in this system their entire life. And so for them, it's very difficult for them to really let it go. They're reluctant to do that. And clearly, not all, but for those that had only made a profession of faith, this is a very real struggle. And then you add in this intense persecution that they're getting, and many are falling away. Which brings us to verse 3 again. This verse is very similar in context to the the warning that God used in chapter 3, verse 11. Remember that? We spent a lot of time there. In chapter 3, verse 11, when God said, So I declared an oath in my anger, what? They shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter. God says, they're not coming in. Now notice that the beginning of verse 4 in chapter 6 starts off, for in the case, for in the case, which connects us previously to if God permits. If that happens, then the sense of the verse then is this. We will press on to maturity. We will press on to completion if God permits. For we know about those in the wilderness generation who God did not permit to enter the promised land. So far from being just some pious wish, these words, if God permits, are now kind of the fulcrum, if you will, for verses 4 through 8. And that's where we want to start unpacking next. Now let me say some words about these verses, because they're very, very difficult. Probably, in my opinion, probably the most difficult, the most difficult texts. Uh, first, uh, not only is it very difficult, but secondly, because we preach expositionally, because we preach verse by verse through the book of the Bible, we cannot avoid verses like this. So sooner or later, every preacher is going to have to address what's in there. And I will tell you, it's not an easy task. I watched my pastor do it before. 
and uh, watched him struggle through it. I don't know how many commentaries and, and different things that he, uh, how long he spent on it, but I will just tell you that it's upwards of 20 for me, maybe more than that, struggling. I've asked other pastors. I've, I've consulted some, some uh, professors of theology. I'm really, it's a very difficult passage. Okay? So let's just say that. Also, we must work through these with great care to be true to the text. Each of us brings in some of our understandings into this. And because we think in our theology that this must be true, we want these verses to say something that perhaps they do not say. We must seek God's help to determine the best understanding of these verses. And whatever interpretation that we come up with, it's not open for, de- it's not open for debate. I'm going to tell you what, what that interpretation is. However... Whatever that is, it has to be consistent with all of Scripture. I can't just pull these verses out and treat them separately and not compare them with all of Scripture. So we have to take into account the history, the context, the grammar of the original language in our quest to truly understand these. And lastly, I want you to know that good, godly Christians have often disagreed on their understanding of these verses. So please understand that. I'm going to share some names that you may know. And he would say, wow, I didn't know they had that view on that text. Christians have often disagreed on the understanding of these verses. I think we're going on 2,000 years now, okay? Roughly 2,000 years on the understanding. That does not make somebody who has a different view from you uninformed, uneducated, unsaved, or even heretics. But it rather points to the difficulty of understanding these verses. And I want to say that because these are the kind of uh, verses that we often like to debate about. Now, that being said, I only get there are about 12 different views of these. We do not have time for that. In the time that we have remaining and setting up for us to dig deeper in next week, I just want to cover the four main views here this morning so that you can start chewing on them, as I've been doing for a while. And let you start thinking them through. Okay? So here we go. And after those four primary views, uh, with whatever time we have, and again, there are many more than four, I'm going to walk you through my position or what I believe is the best understanding of this third warning. Okay? So next time, as we start unpacking these verses verse by verse, I hope to show you why I believe that's the correct view. But even more importantly, I pray that when we're finished... We have a stronger understanding of these verses and a better understanding of why they are important doctrinally. So let's get started, shall we? Let's look at verses 4 through 6. I'm going to read them aloud for you. Just have you kind of chew on these a little bit here. For in the case of those who have been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Okay, let's look at the first view. Here's the first view of people who read those verses. This is how they would, they would understand that. They would say, the author of Hebrews is talking about true believers who lose their salvation when they fall away. That's one view. Those who hold this view believe that salvation is dependent upon man's will to believe and man's will to continue to believe in Christ. 
And since the decision to believe is entirely theirs, then so is the decision to not believe entirely theirs. And they believe that truly severe sins, although they do have a hard time when pressed defining what the difference is between a severe sin and a, and a regular sin, I guess. The, whatever that is, it results in losing your salvation. In this view, this passage is a perfect example of, what they, of why they believe you can lose your salvation. I reject this view for two reasons. First, Scripture explicitly states that true believers cannot lose their salvation. There are many, many verses to support this. But let's just remind ourselves of a couple. Turn to John chapter 6 in your Bible. John chapter 6, verse 39. John chapter 6, verse 39 and 40. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. That seems pretty clear to me. But in case we're still wondering, let's go to John chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. This is my favorite, if you recall, when we were walking through the Gospel of John, the Good Shepherd passage here in John chapter 10. We see this now in verse 25. Jesus answered and said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they te these testify of me. Verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Verse 28. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That seems pretty clear to me as well. But in case you're not quite convinced, let's go to Romans chapter 8. We'll look at one more. And again, these are just the tip of the iceberg of scriptures about eternal salvation. There are many, many more. I'm just giving you the ones that just come top of mind right away. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that God causes, causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? And then he goes on and says, For what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he also not how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, uh, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. 
Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For just as written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are, we are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Look at verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our God. Very, very clear. Secondly, if our verse here, that's so for the first reason I reject that view is because Scripture explicitly teaches us you cannot lose your salvation. Second reason is, because if this verse is speaking about true believers and they could possibly lose their salvation, then it's also teaching that it's impossible for them to regain it. Which is what the text says. Now, I've never met anyone who supports this view who has an appropriate answer for that. Beloved, if you've truly trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you receive eternal life and nothing can change that. Thank God that the security of our salvation is not dependent upon our faithfulness, but it is rooted and secured in Christ's faithfulness. Amen? Amen. Let's look at the second view quickly. These are, again, true believers who deny Christ but remain saved, although they lose some rewards in heaven. Some pretty famous people have adopted this view. Zane Hodges from Dallas Theological Seminary, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, like this view as well. The person who holds this view believes that as long as you have a change in your mind about Christ, you're saved forever. This person may become an atheist later or completely deny Christ or live in continual sin the rest of their life, but it doesn't matter because they had a change of mind at some point in their life about Christ. Now, there are far too many problems with this view for me to endorse this one. Mainly, the epistle of James and 1 John speak explicitly against that. And it's certainly true that a true believer can sin, even very severe sins, like David. Or how about Peter denying Christ three times to his face? And yet still be restored. But the Bible is also very clear that there are several genuine marks of a true believer. And a life that's completely devoid of any of those marks that bears no fruit at all, certainly raises very serious questions about the genuineness of their conversion. And a person who falls away and crucifies again the Son of God, putting him to open shame, who cannot be renewed to repentance, seems to indicate somebody who's suffering a judgment more than just losing some rewards. View number three. This is the view that these verses are just hypothetical. They're not really true. That the author of Hebrews is just kind of throwing them out there to kind of, if you will, scare or emphasize his point. And this view also thinks that they're speaking to believers here. I reject this view as an appropriate view because this one is a tough one to explain why now all of a sudden the author of Hebrews has been, who's been very explicit about who did what and why, specifically Moses, Joshua, uh, the angels, the wilderness wanderings. He's really basically calling names, right? Calling people out, naming names. And now all of a sudden he goes to a hypothetical example. That's a little hard to follow biblically. But secondly, even bigger than that for me, 
is that a hypothetical warning is not really a warning at all, is it? So, for example, I mean, if it's impossible for it to incur, you don't need to warn me about it. Not to be flippant, but would you be concerned if I warned you about the dangers of being gored in the parking lot by a purple unicorn? My guess is not many of you are very concerned about that as you leave this afternoon. Well, why not? Because there's no real danger of that happening. Likewise, if it's impossible to do something, then you do not need to warn me to do it. If it's impossible for a true believer to lose their salvation, which Scripture clearly indicates, then you do not need to warn me not to do it. All right, let's look at the last view. View number four. These are not true believers. These are professing Christians who have come to right to the edge of salvation, but they cannot seem to take that next step. They cannot seem to surrender at all. They are in the church. They've heard the gospel numerous times. They have all the appearances of somebody who's a true believer, but they are not saved. These are professing Christians who float on down the river of life, right, and bypass the harbor of salvation, right? They neglect their salvation. Remember that warning in in chapter 2 was to professing believers. These are the professing Christians who heard the good news repeatedly. They've seen God's hand at work in their li- in the lives of many true believers. They've seen God's transforming power in full display in the lives of others, right in front of their eyes. And yet, when crisis comes, when persecution arrives, they fall away. These are the folks of the rocky soil in the parable of the soils in Matthew 13 that we've looked at a couple different times. And as the parable of the sower shows, the stony ground and the seed among the thorns looked good for a while, didn't it? But then persecution comes and the trials of life come and guess what? It bears no fruit for eternal life. In other words, the false believer seems to be saved for a while, has all the trappings, looks the part, whatever the Christian looks like there, maybe perhaps has some Jesus gear in their closet, maybe a bumper sticker on the back of their car. They might even have a Bible in their home, and yet they do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They deny Christ. They turn their back on Jesus. They walk away from their faith forever. And that's what we've seen throughout these epistles, isn't it? Isn't that what we've seen so far in the first five chapters. Professing Christians who through persecution and through difficult times are now falling away from their profession of Christ and returning back to Judaism. In essence, when they do that, they're putting Christ to open shame. They're re-crucifying Christ once again by returning to those who crucified the Lord. They're diminishing his atoning work on the cross. They have hardened their hearts against the truth that they were exposed to again and again and again. And although they looked for a while as if they're truly saved, their lives now show that they were never truly saved. This is the view that I believe best fits the context of not only this chapter, but the entirety of the book of Hebrews. Okay, we're out of time yet again. So here's what I want to leave you with to chew on before we come back next time. And we're going to dig deeper into each of these verses. Here we are. The author of Hebrews 
wants his listeners to move beyond the elementary truths and to really fully understand what they mean in Christ now. That the picture, the shadows of the things that you thought were bringing you salvation were just that, just pictures, just shadows, that were all pointing to Christ. Yes, Judaism had these doctrines in their elementary form, but now the author of Hebrews is saying you've got to let go of that and move beyond that and come to maturity. It was in true saving faith that the Holy Spirit would illuminate their understanding and then carry them into maturity. There's no such thing as clinging to these old basics of the old covenant and maturing in Christ. They're two opposite things. They needed to move forward. They needed to press on to completion in their understanding of the gospel. They needed to leap into the deep water of obedience and understanding. But that could only happen if they were not sluggish in applying the truths of God's word to their lives. At one time, they received the word with joy, just like the rocky soil. But because they have not embraced that truth in faith, that root was shallow. So when persecution arrived, they fell away. And those that fall away are going to face very dire consequences. Matter of fact, the text tells us severe consequences. Beloved, if you're here today and you've never fully trusted Christ, if you're not absolutely sure of your salvation, I I beg you, I plead you, don't just come to the edge yet again. Be absolutely sure of where you are and who you are in Christ. Do not harden your heart to the gospel yet again. Do not presume upon God's grace. Come all the way to faith in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. Do not harden your heart yet again to the truth of the gospel. Come to Jesus. Find that rest. Come to Jesus all the way. If you're here today and you've never done that, I pray that you would hang around a little after the service. You would speak to me or one of the elders and make sure that you know for sure who you are in Christ. Do not let another day go by. There are indeed very dire consequences of coming right up to that edge again and again and again and never taking that step of faith. So if you're here today, you don't know that for sure. You don't know who you are in Christ. Don't presume upon God's grace yet another minute. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, as we prepare our hearts now for a very difficult text as we start unpacking here next week. Thank you, Lord, for walking us through uh, the, very, the problems, Lord, that have accompanied this text. But I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to your word. Pray, Lord, that we would do the due diligence, that we would be good Bereans, that we would, Lord, dig deep into your truths and test them against the the veracity of your word. Thank you, Father, that we have your truth. Thank you, Lord, that we have your spirit to illuminate the text for us, to help us in our understanding. But, Father, I pray that as your spirit does that, that we have obedient hearts open hearts to your wonderful truth. 
and that we wouldn't be just looking to understand this passage so that we can astound our friends with our knowledge of this difficult passage, but rather, Lord, that we would understand it in a way that we could apply it to our lives and bring honor and glory to you and become more and more like you every day. Father, this passage is in our text for a very specific reason. You know what that is. Help us to wrestle through it in a way that brings you honor and glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.